Hello and welcome to the journalism.co.uk podcast. I'm your host, Jacob Granger. Each week we bring you the most interesting conversations from around the media industry. And today we're talking about a project to amplify the voices and stories of women journalists in East and West Africa during COVID-19 and beyond. Joining me today is Catherine Gisheru, a Knight Fellow at the International Centre for Journalists and the director of a relatively new initiative, the Africa Women Journalism Project, the AWJP. That was set up in July of last year, at a time when the coronavirus pandemic had caused mass redundancies, particularly amongst women journalists. Add to this the frenzy of attention given to COVID-19, there were still so many important stories falling by the wayside in the region, stories which these women were best placed to tell. The AWJP provides mentorship and support to women, for now, across five countries, Kenya, Tanzania, Ghana, Nigeria and Uganda. And though there are commonalities between these countries, Catherine tells me the value of this guidance for getting those nuances correct. And so too does she explain how the project is preparing women to venture into the field when that is their only option to tell the most unreported of stories. That's all to come, but first, this. As well as great editorial content, journalism.co.uk provides media training for journalists, editors and other media professionals. On the 1st of March 2021, we are running a course on how to become a successful freelance journalist, and that's led by Lily Cantor and Emma Wilkinson, the authors of the Freelancing for Journalists book. For this course and all the other great courses we run, head over to www.journalism.co.uk forward slash courses. Catherine, welcome to the journalism.co.uk podcast. What's the working situation like for you at the moment? It's weird working from home. We've been doing this for the la- since last year, just before the pandemic struck. So working from home is weird and kind of gives you time to do an introspective about how it was. A whole working day, you had to commute, stay in the office for about six, eight hours, and then commute back home nights. Like the only place you move from is from your bedroom you take a visa to go to your living room take a visa to go. so it's quite interesting it's yeah yeah of course you can see my bedroom behind me so that's pulled into <laughs> sharp focus uh, Catherine yeah. is, is the working from home situation getting in any easier for you I am working with a team we started this project in July last year I'm working with a team of five we haven't met at all we did interviews virtually we've been working virtually all through we haven't met face to face it's quite a different thing because I'm a person who loves, I like talking to people like continuously seeing them, talking to them. But now we've been living on the virtual space and it's it's a different thing, but it's also very, it just goes to show what how much time we've been wasting going to offices, I think, and still being able to produce good work. Yeah, pros and cons. So you've not actually met your new colleagues, but you have been able to get this off the ground and, and, and rolling despite them being in, what, five different countries, really? Yeah, we're working in five different countries. My project team is in Kenya, but we haven't actually met because it hasn't been conducive to meet. So in a way, it's it's the way... It's it's quite weird, but we're planning on maybe meeting face-to-face someday soon. Let's hope so. Let's hope that is quite soon. We are here, of course, to talk about the Africa Women Journalism Project. Um, why don't you take me from the top and talk to me about your mission? 
what it is you do and why it is so important right now? Previously, I've been working as a journalist, as you may know. So I've been working for many years as a journalist, but and I became a fellow with ICFJ about five years ago, five, almost six years ago. Uh, this project in, involves working with women journalists in five different countries, essentially to mentor them and to help them get new skills and also grow themselves in within the industry. Because as you know, in most of our countries, women, actually it's not most of our countries, I think it's women everywhere, women in the newsroom, they don't tend to be in decision-making positions. So we are hoping to, to skill them and help them grow within the profession in their own newsrooms and also help bring about innovations in the newsroom with a main focus looking at new ways of reporting issues that have not been reported before, have been underreported. In this case, we're looking at issues that involve women and other marginalised communities. The journalists you support also have their work published to the AWJP website. What's the process there and, and how does that work? We don't just have the website to publish the story. We partner with the newsroom. So the process is that the fellows pitch stories and they have to pitch to, we also help them pitch the same stories to their editors. And then they go ahead and do the story. We support them by, if it means to travel or something, they need to, we tried not to travel too much, but if they had to, we would support them on that. And then would help them with finding data if they needed any data, if they're not able to find would don't ask me how we find it somehow. We know people who know people who have access to data. Uh, after they do the, the stories, we help them, we edit the stories, we help them with the visualization, we help them do the source video, social videos if they need that. But essentially they must publish with their newsroom. Okay, they, they take it back to their editor, who, their editors who can play around with it, but essentially we give them a complete package. So essentially, we we do two versions, one for online and one for print, and we share that with the editors, and then the editors go ahead and publish on their, and that's, yeah, that's it. We have a, a story brainstorm. We want to understand what the hell are you writing this for? How different is it from the story that was done by X in your country about an issue? How can we make it different? What is the issue that has... What is it we can tease out of the information that we are able to get? And if we have data, we use that. If we don't have data, we try and find any kind of uh, in reports or whatever, even academic reports sometimes, because it's some, we, there's a challenge in terms of the data that is accessible, available, and how topical, how recent it might be. Because in some countries, the Bureau of Statistics tend to use a lot of surveys, but not actual, actual, actual. So you have a lot of, uh, and WHO and the World Bank tend to have what I call data, which is sometimes really dated, like 2010. God, we are 2021. <laughs> or 2017, that's three years old. But that's the reason, most recent data. So sometimes you have to make uh, make do with what you have and supplement with additional academic surveys or academic reports or research. Anyway, it's, it's the fun thing about doing journalism here because you know you, you start out with one beautiful hypothesis 
and somehow down the road it changes obviously that happens in everything in every other story you're doing but sometimes the because of the difficulties you you're forced to think about that issue in a different way and that in itself is a new way of telling that story so it gives you another angle you'd never otherwise have great and um you're grant funded as well this is made possible through grant funding yes 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 it is uh we're funded by icfj and they've given us uh, they've supported us since we started mm. and the remit of your work geographically that's east and west africa yes we're working in east africa kenya uganda tanzania and uh, we're also working in nigeria and and ghana and the reason for that is because they're english speaking but also because within those five countries okay we have a whole region we're not doing south africa we're not doing north africa but we thought we start off with those two regions first and see how we, we can grow from there nigeria and ghana they are the issues we face in east africa the issues that they are facing in west africa using those two countries as as pilots you'd find there are some areas of um the, the the commonalities of some of those problems and it's been quite surprising for example we were looking at something as mundane as open air markets because pandemic has has closed most of the markets were closed because of the covid and the restrictions that were instituted and everywhere in all those countries we're in we're looking at open air markets and we're saying who works there most of the time obviously it's women who are the vendors or the traders and what does that mean especially for urban populations and especially in formal settlement people who are on the lower economic scale they depend on those markets for food the farmers in the rural areas who are subsistence farmers where do they sell their food to be able to get money to buy stuff which they you know so looking at that thing and we realize it's a common problem across the five countries we're working in yeah but really representative of the continent are there also important nuances and distinctions between these countries though yeah i mean there are obvious things for example something to do with fgm female genital mutilation it's reported i mean it happens in all the five countries but the different ways the different in different countries how that is being dealt with yes there's a whole preaching scenario where oh fgm is bad fgm is bad but how do you get communities to actually change their attitudes towards that so we find there are different things that are being done in different countries differently but the problem is the same i would call it the global messages fgm is bad should be banned blah 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 in some of these countries in actually all these countries we have anti fgm laws but how are they been implemented and also how are communities been engaged or how are you engaging communities to deal with that issue because you can put many people in jail but that doesn't stop them how do you deal with that so we found for example in kenya we have uh, different organizations that are actually having conversations with men because if the issue is that a man a young man will not marry a girl who is not cut then you better have the conversation with the men and tell them hey by the way you should be part of this if you don't want your wife to be cut because it's cultural blah 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 if you get them on your side it becomes easier to change communities attitudes towards that on the other hand you have across um, the other side you have uh, in nigeria you have imams who are actually talking about fgm but saying it's not a religious tenet it's not supported by the quran or something so 
if you have them on your side, then it becomes a conversation much more than using the big stick to enforce a law, which it's illegal, yes, the, it's been banned, but how do you get people to see why it should not be allowed to continue? You need to change attitudes. How do you change attitudes? Is actually getting them to see from where they're sitting, where they're saying they should be doing it, and why you're saying they shouldn't be doing it. What are the, You have a conversation, not stop it and stop it now. Those are the kind of nuances we see in, in when we're doing some of these stories, and they make it all more exciting to write about them. I imagine that's where the mentorship is really helpful to navigate through some of those differences, right? Yeah, exactly. Uh, I mean, in all the countries you're working, we have a senior journalist uh, who is mentoring the fellows we have in the program. And because they've got a lot of experience in, in, in the media and they are able to actually, they've built up, they have a whole body of, of contacts and resources at their disposal. If they don't have, we can help them where we can. But essentially to mentor them, to be able to capture some of these issues in a way that hasn't been reported about before, so that it's it adds value to saying FGM is bad, for example, but it's bad, yes, but this is what we as society, we as a community, even if it's just one small village somewhere, this is what we're doing about it, so that you amplify those voices. And those voices of change, I call them, but ah, anyway... <laughs> That's the way we look at it. Mm, I'm with you. Uh, having having launched this in July, to what extent was this a, a, a response to the pandemic? Ah, uh, yeah, it was definitely in response to the pandemic because we realised there wasn't much looking at how is this pandemic playing out amongst the as a gender issue. Mm, yeah, we were looking at it globally, holistically, society level, but really. The impacts on women, and this has been shown even when we had the Ebola scenario uh, in in Liberia and even in Sierra Leone, where really it's not so much the people who are dying, it it isn't so much the people who are getting affected, it's also how that is impacting on women specifically and girls. So, for example, the women have to be like, they are obviously the primary caregivers. It has exposed the inequality or the inequity when it comes to the role that women and girls the load the burden that women and girls have been have had to bear now and we wanted to look at those things from that perspective pools were closed and it's true most countries i think they just resumed last month december no actually november in kenya i think we did just for the exam classes and then we opened fully this month but in most of those countries, most of the girls who are not going to school either got became pregnant or were sexually assaulted, became more vulnerable because no jobs, no money in the home. They are forced to go out and work or if they need to get their, you know, I call it transactional sex where you want to get something, you have no money, you have sex for that, you get paid for that, you know to support their families or to support themselves. So, in fact, one of the stories we're looking at, uh, we are trying to get the data for is figuring out, based on uh, the, the long closure, how many girls are now not going back to school because they either have found jobs and because the household situation is such that the little money that they may be making is actually necessary for the survival of those. So we will find uh, how many girls have fallen by the wayside. What is the problem?
Yeah. Because there, there must be some stories which are just far more accessible if done by a woman, right? Yeah, exactly. I mean, the obvious thing is like when you're talking about um, obstetric fistula or even accessing sexual reproductive health information and products, I mean, you're not likely, a guy is not likely to go up and ask a woman, oh, okay, tell us about whether you're getting access to family planning. And then the next question would be, who the hell are you to ask me about that? But it's a problem that all women are facing because we can, we should, must, and the challenges that we're facing now as women trying to access reproductive health services, whether it's getting contraceptives or whether getting your renewal and depot, whatever it is, it is not, we, that problem is not in the face of a guy and a woman is not likely to want to talk about that with a guy. So there is access that we're able to talk to some of these issues. So we're more likely to be empathetic and therefore more accessible to talk to us than maybe to a guy. Mm. It strikes me as a really important point that you're giving a platform to underreported stories at a time when a lot of these women journalists have been laid off because of the pandemic, right? Yeah, many, 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 many of them have lost their jobs and the few who are left are having to juggle additional responsibilities. We have fellows in, in Ghana and in Nigeria and in Uganda who have now had to juggle additional responsibilities because they're really good at their work, but because they laid off the guys. In, in, in Kenya, a number, quite a number of them have been laid off and or they're working part-time, which is crappy. It's not a gig economy, but it's really crappy. The impact on your household budgets and all the rest of it, there's no job security and all the rest of it. But at the same time, a lot of the women are the ones who found new ways of using new media or using the digital space to continue writing and podcasting, whether they are fantastic or not. But the idea is they are going ahead and trying out these new spaces. The problem with that is that obviously there are humongous 110 million or whatever number of people out there, but they've lost the jobs, but they haven't stopped trying to see how they can amplify their voice in those spaces, which in, for me, it's a good thing. Okay, it's bad that it's happened that you've lost your job, but if it's given you the impetus to go out and try something in a space that you'd otherwise not have because you had a job, then I think there's some silver lining. A small one, a small one, but it's better than nothing, yeah. I do want to come on to that silver lining, but you know, at the start of this call, we joked about working from home for a lot of these journalists, how manageable is it to work from home? It depends a lot on your connectivity and the cost of connectivity because, okay, some news organizations in East Africa as well as West Africa, because of they, they not only cut down by half, 50% salary cut, but also sending people away. They use some of the money to connect people onto the internet. It's not very easy because uh, there are problems with connectivity. It can be up, it can be down. I mean, it's not steady, it's not whatever, but at least it's possible to do that. And what I was saying about the gig economy is because now you can be able to, instead of giving full time, you can actually, most newsrooms are contracting women journalists and to do uh, editing 
online. So you do what is called peace work. It's working, but then the boots on the ground is not happening very well because it's very few who can still be able to do that. And because of the travel restrictions that existed and, and some places still exist, it's difficult to do some of some of those face-to-face uh, -face interviews. Um, the other thing we found is that, especially with our fellows, the two or three of the fellows have gone out because you really need to go out to do these stories, to do these interviews. And then you come back and you find that you're actually put in quarantine because you, are, you have contracted the virus. We haven't lost anybody, thank God. But in some newsrooms, the virus has, has kind of caused chaos because newsrooms have become, or journalists have become infected. It, it's kind of put a stop to those face-to-face, one-on-one interviews you want to have. At its really fundamental level, some of the most underreported stories, how you get in to access those stories virtually is, is almost impossible. You literally have to be there face-to-face -to, -face to do them, right? What we said is unnecessary travel. We are not encouraging. But at the same time, the fellows are really enthusiastic and very driven, and they want to really talk to that woman who whose fistula operation was not, was cancelled because it's not, a, it's an elective surgery. And how do you talk to that woman without seeing her? You have to go there. So a lot of them have taken extremely major precautions, a lot of precautions just to go ahead and do their interviews as they should. And we shared with them how to protect yourself when you go out to the field. There's the usual, all the manuals that came out, but we know our situation. Okay, you know, you want to interview somebody don't tell me about sanitizer and all the rest. Yes, there's that. But how do you not, if you are then seen to be of a, of a zealous in protecting yourself, you are creating a barrier with your subject. So again, it, it's a matter of being able to understand how do you still go out there, engage with your sources and do these interviews, but do not create a, a barrier because of your being of a protected. One of the webinars we did with the fellows is actually talking about how do you talk to your subject when you go out to the field, if you have to go to the field, this is what you need to do. But when you approach your subject, how do you then explain why you're wearing 10 masks or whatever it is that you're doing and so that you don't throw them off or make them think that you're afraid of catching it from them that's such an interesting point you make i mean for me the obvious thing was i just told them look when you go out and you're meeting with somebody and you're wearing your mask and you have your hand sanitizer and all the rest of it just tell them you're being very careful because you've been meeting so many people you might be the one with it so that you're protecting them from you because you might be the carrier immediately you say that to somebody they are armed and they're like oh Okay, no problem. Catherine, go ahead. So you 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 kind of take away the weird, you're not the one giving it to me, I'm the one who might give it to you. And I don't want to do that because I've I've met too many people. So that's that's the way to kind of disarm the subject even before you start your interview. But you keep still keep yourself safe. Yeah. Yeah. That's that's such a tricky balance, isn't it? Thinking about, I mean, you said before there were silver linings in terms of uh working without having to necessarily be there face to face. How have some journalists risen to that challenge? A lot of them are doing a lot more in terms of um, 
experimenting with stuff online or trying to do either it's podcasts or writing their blogs or getting into blogs and actually revamping some of the blogs. Some of them have started blogs or started. The other thing is also being able to do your own stuff because maybe your newsroom has got, well, it's not able to publish certain things. So I'm seeing quite a bit of, uh, quite a number of journalists actually trying to do that. And uh, the other thing which it has done is, uh, at least in Kenya, it's pushed the newsrooms to think really seriously and about how to make themselves sustainable, thinking about new ways of monetizing their content. And that's a conversation which wasn't, it was happening, but not with the agency, which I'm seeing happening now, where everybody, everybody I've talked to in most of the newsrooms, their, their mind is just wrapping around, looking at what can we do to stay alive? Because we've laid off 50% of the newsroom, we've cut 50% of the salaries. Uh, things are not going to get any better, even if we open up, we've opened up, not too much, but we're opening up, but it's still not going to get better. So you, I've seen a lot of those kind of um, attempts at trying to see how to monetize content that they're producing. And, and, and I'm thinking that's the silver lining because I, if it wasn't for the pandemic, this conversation will still be yeah on and off, on and off, but not really with the intensity I'm seeing it happen now. And I think for me, the silver lining, because I think we are maybe 10 years behind this. We should have had this conversation maybe five years ago. We should have started this conversation at this point. We should have been the try and error. We've tried everything and it's failing or we've tried and stuff is working. We're in the second iteration or whatever it is that is working. But as it is, it's better late than sorry. What about for women journalists who are no longer with newsrooms? Um, we spoke obviously before about journalists um, who had uh, been laid off what what support is in place for women journalists who have found themselves unemployed throughout this period the fellows who found themselves laid off what we've done is we help them pitch to their editors and then the editors oh pitch to different publications and then those publications can pay them by the piece so that at least they are not just zero 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 and we give them a monthly stipend just enough to make calls, to pay your phone bill, your internet, and at least get you to go around. And then once we pitch your story to, once an editor publishes it, then they will pay you whatever you negotiate. We don't negotiate for them, but we help them pitch the story. We tell them, okay, if you're going to talk to, let's say this newspaper and uh, whatever, whatever, figure out, okay, what is it? Who is it? How is it? And what is the angle? that the editor would jump on and then you just kind of retweak your story to suit that particular audience because that's what they're doing. The benefit of that is that some of them have been able to pitch stories to newspapers outside of their own newspapers, to international news magazines and newspapers. And I, I, for me, I'm happy because at least we've managed or we've taught them how to pitch. What do you need to know when you're pitching? And if this is the story, how do you re-angle it to suit a digital audience vis-a-vis a print audience? Because not necessarily the same people. What else, you know, it's been great hearing about your work uh, throughout the last year, Catherine. What else do you really want to achieve through, through this project? I've realized there's one, if you have women journalists reporting on issues that 
are not on the, they are always on the back burner of most of our newsrooms. If I can set, a, if you could kind of get a, a, I don't want to call it a network or stream, if you want to call it, of awesome, awesome, awesome journalists who are reporting on these issues, not because they're being given funding per se to report on maternal child health or theme theme driven, but actually articulating and amplifying the stories that need that need to be told but are not being told, but told from the perspective of it's happening to me in Kenya, it's happened to another woman in Nigeria. What the hell can we say about it and how can we say it so that we can cause change, whether it's at a very small level or even at a big level, but how can we? So my idea is to set up a, I don't know whether you want to call it a network or a collective of women, awesome women journalists who will tell that story because we keep on talking about telling the African story, but really telling the African story tends to be told by whom, from what perspective, and by whom, about whom, and what. The African story is either Africa rising or Africa dead. And the Africa rising narrative is driven by quote-unquote achievements in economics, sometimes political, but really what I call the basic, I call it at the human level, what is changing for the African woman in this Africa rising narrative? A few women in parliament or 30% gender or 50% balance in parliament. That, how does that impact on, the, on my mother? Sorry to use, or your sister or, or my whoever in the village. How does that change their lives? And I think those narratives are good, but they're not really talking about the 51, 52% of the population in the continent and actually in the world, seriously. I mean, it's a crazy thing when I talk about it because I don't know what, mine is, okay, all things being equal, I want to see this replicated a million times in this continent where we are telling our story ourselves and us as we is we men it's been absolutely great talking to you about this project uh wish you all the best with it and thank you for coming on our podcast thank you very much for having me great to speak to Catherine there but what really came through this conversation to me is that this is not just about support for women journalists in africa in the here and now though that is clearly needed it's also about creating lasting change by helping those fellows rise up through the ranks in their respective newsrooms. And I'll certainly keep an eye out for that awesome collective of African women journalists that Catherine was talking about. If you like what you heard today, you can find all our other episodes on Spotify, SoundCloud, and Apple Podcasts by searching and subscribing to the journalism.co.uk podcast. And if you'd like to feature on the podcast, do drop me an email on jacob at journalism.co.uk. I'd love to hear from you. But that's all we have time for today. I've been your host, Jacob Granger. Thanks so much for listening. Until next time.